Let's pray together before we consider these passages. Lord, thank you for your word and for your life, that you came and had all life in you, and your life was the light of men. Lord, when you came, blind people saw, and deaf people heard, and lame people leapt for joy. Lord, I pray that this morning you would continue that work amongst us here so that in this very place we who are blind might see and who are deaf might hear and who are lame might leap for joy. Thank you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, My son Ian is just a little bit more than two years old, and he is at a stage where he is fascinated with everything, uh, which is one of my favorite things about him. It's exhausting sometimes, but it's also awesome that he constantly wants to check out and explore and know about and participate in. Uh, And specifically right now, he loves anything that I or Susie do. He wants to know about it and be involved in it and partake in it. Uh, One of the newest things at our house is a garden we have in the front yard. And so every morning I get up and water the garden for a few minutes to keep the plants from drying out. And he's always got to follow me out and uh, observe the watering. And then usually about five minutes after I'm done watering and I've turned the hose off, I can look outside and find Ian holding the waterless hose, shaking it over the plants to see if he could get any water to come out and water the plants as well. Uh, Anytime we're in the kitchen making food for breakfast or dinner, it doesn't matter what's on TV or what's going on outside, he wants to be in the kitchen, sitting on the counter, looking in the bowl, holding the spoon, participating in what we're doing. And uh, I think it's perhaps this character that so many children have as part of the reason why Christ says, if we're to follow him, we should become more like children. Uh, Because Ian loves what we love. And we as a people are called to love what Christ loves. Uh, And he loves a lot of things, but one of the things that he loves is his mission. And Pentecost uh, is all about God's mission. Uh, There's about seven or eight or more different sermons that I could preach on Pentecost, and I prepared some of them and decided they weren't really what we wanted to hear. Uh, I want us to see this morning what Christ is about, what God loves, his mission, uh, and to join him in it. Specifically, my sermon's got two parts. The first part is uh, the beauty of God's mission and the fact that the whole Bible really is about God's mission. Uh, And the second part is about how the church has almost never really cared, ever, much at all. Uh, Not to make us feel guilty, but just to help us be aware that it's probably our default setting Uh, to not care quite so much as we should. Uh, There's a quote in the front of the worship folder that I borrowed from uh, Chris Wright, uh, where he says, Mission is what the Bible is all about. We could as meaningfully talk of the missional basis of the Bible as of the biblical basis of mission. And what he's saying is that... uh, Especially in mission circles, we have a tendency to pick out a few Bible verses here and there that talk about how important mission is and thereby to prop up mission. And he's saying, you know, that's fine, but just as easily as you could do that, you could talk about how mission is what God is about and how the very Bible itself is a product of God's mission, that we have it 
specifically because he's on a mission and he wants to involve us in it. Uh, I want to take just a couple moments to begin with to look at a few verses in the Bible just to remind us that this really is uh, one of the main themes, perhaps the theme of the Bible. A few months ago, I did a sermon from Genesis 12 where God begins his mission by calling Abraham and pointed out that right there in that very passage at the beginning of Genesis 12, that God says he's going to bless Abraham so that he can be a blessing to the nations. From the very beginning, the purpose is for us to go out and be a blessing to the nations. 400 years later, when God called Abraham's children together as the nation of Israel, right before he gave them the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, in Exodus 19, he says, here's why I'm giving you the Ten Commandments. He says, you will be to me a holy nation and a royal priesthood. And the idea is that just as priests mediate between God and people and draw the people towards God, so the whole nation of Israel, all of God's people, their function was to mediate between God and the nations of the world and to draw them towards God. That is, in many ways, the purpose of the Ten Commandments, that as they lived out the Ten Commandments, that the people around them would look at the Israelites and say, where else is there a nation that has such a just God with such merciful and just and good and wise and right rules and lives? We want in on what's going on in Israel. We want to know that God. That is the mission of the people of Israel. Uh, when we get to the New Testament, Christ takes his mission in, in the next step by coming himself. Uh, I think sometimes we forget what an unbelievable and radical thing the incarnation is. Basically, we believe that the impersonal organizing force of the universe, the, the force behind Newton's laws and uh, Einstein's theory of relativity, the, the force that thought all of that up, actually showed up in time and space as a physical human being uh, in a particular place and time. And John tells us that the reason why that happened is so that he could communicate to us and to the world uh, the nature of God. Uh, in Acts, uh, in our passage, we see that mission continues on. In Acts 1.1, we hear this. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach uh, until the day he was taken up. What's the first book? The first book is the Gospel of Luke. That Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and Acts. And they're really two halves to one whole book. Uh, but what I really want you to pay attention to is the word began. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. What is, what is Luke suggesting? He's suggesting that Acts is really part two of what Jesus himself personally did. We call the book of Acts, Acts, which is, by the way, not a name that Luke gave it. It's just come from church history. Acts is short for the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, but I don't really know that that is a name that Luke would have been so fond of. Luke is writing about the further Acts of Jesus. That the book of Acts, which you've read it, 
you know it's about the establishment of the early church and the spread of Christianity throughout the whole known world is, is the personal work of Jesus Christ working through his spirit and through the disciples. Uh, so what does he say? What does he do in Acts? We read on. Uh, he presented themselves alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them for 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. That's his mission, to bring out the kingdom of God, his kingdom values of peace and justice and mercy. Uh, and he presented themselves to him alive, proving that he had risen from the dead. In verse 4, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So he's saying, I'm going to take off, but I want you to stay right here in Jerusalem and wait for me to send the Holy Spirit. Uh, so the disciples jump in. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They've got a little bit of their own agenda going on. And Christ responds, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, uh, which actually I hope is comforting to us in the sense that Jesus says we don't know when the end is, and we don't know how it is that he's going to go about his work or when it's going to happen. This makes sense of the ups and downs we see in the history of church and our continued suffering. In fact, Christ himself said that he did not know. Uh, and you can be assured that if God himself has hidden a thing from Christ, that we will not know uh, when the day will come. But he wants them to focus instead on this, that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. See, by the time we get to Acts 1, Christ has actually given what we call the Great Commission over and over and over again, at least three times with these specific words. This is, this is something that he was hoping the disciples would pick up on by now. And this is the reason why I chose this passage to talk about Pentecost rather than Acts 2, which we'll talk about in a minute. Because I want us to see why it is that the Holy Spirit came. Uh, because Pentecost is about the coming of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 8 again. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, basically in order so that you may be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And uh, the, the Holy Spirit is, is given... Uh, not to make us feel warm and fuzzy or comforted or close to God or to have an emotional experience, uh, which things may be true. He's given ultimately to empower us to be involved in his mission, to bring his message to every part of the world. So he uh, asks the disciples to remain in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes and then to go out and be involved in the mission. And so they wait and it so happens that when Christ chose to send his spirit, it happened on the day of Pentecost. And uh, what is Pentecost? Todd alluded to this a little bit earlier, but Pentecost actually comes from the Greek word Pentecostos, which means 50th. Uh, because in the Old Testament there were three great feasts that God commanded his people to celebrate every year. Passover... Uh, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles. 
uh, Passover commemorates uh, the redemption of the Israelites from sin and from slavery in Egypt. And by the way, the Passover is fulfilled uh, in that Christ gives us the Last Supper and he died on the cross in the context of Passover. That's what Passover is about, is redemption from sin. And the Feast of Weeks... The second feast is a harvest feast. It's not at the end of the harvest. It's at the beginning of the harvest. It's sometimes called the feast of the first fruits. The idea is at the very uh, beginning of the harvest, when the food first comes, the Israelites are to gather together in Jerusalem and offer some of that grain and then eat it in God's presence and be excited and celebrate the fact that God is working again and he's bringing them food and he will continue to do his work. And the Feast of Weeks is called in the Old Testament the Feast of Weeks because it happens seven weeks after Passover, which is 49 days plus one, which is 50 days. Which means that Pentecost is just the Greek New Testament term for the Feast of Weeks. The Pentecost just refers to this Old Testament feast. And it's in this context of the Feast of Pentecost that Christ chooses to give his Holy Spirit in part because it's on that day that Jews from all over Israel are gathered together in Jerusalem, and not just them, but people from other nations who were so fascinated by Jewish law and the Jewish God that they wanted to be in on what he was doing, and they came to Jerusalem for Pentecost to celebrate the Feast of Weeks as well, which is, by the way, exactly what God was shooting for in Exodus in the Old Testament, that there would be people from all over the world that would be fascinated by what he was doing and love what he was doing as his people in Israel and be there uh, for that feast. If we start reading in Acts 2, it begins this way. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. The word arrived in Greek is actually, the word is actually fulfilled. It's a technical term that's only used a couple times and always refers to fulfilling of Old Testament prophecy. When the Feast of Pentecost, when the time came for it to be fulfilled, the Holy Spirit came. Now what sort of connection does that conjure up in your mind? There's a feast of first fruits where the people are celebrating the beginning of God's work. And at that feast, he sends the Holy Spirit to empower his people to go out and spread the word to the nations. It is the first fruits of a new kind of harvest. And uh, if you read on, suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, which signifies the presence of God, Uh, There was fire over the temple in the Old Testament, and now the fire is over each individual believer, signifying that his spirit has come to rest inside them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave utterance. Uh, There's a lot of questions about these tongues, and uh, I'm happy to chat with you if you're interested, but I will let you know that I'm convinced that these tongues, these other tongues, were human languages that... The tongues were the disciples suddenly and miraculously having the ability to speak in languages they had not previously known in Arabic and Greek and Latin and Ethiopian and Syriac and all sorts of languages so that they could communicate in a miraculous way the truth 
of God's salvation, the truth of God's mission to all people. Notice, because if we keep on reading, we read just what I described already in uh, Acts 2.5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each one of them in his own native language? Now, then Luke gives us a list of who is present. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Now, a lot of these names of places aren't names we use currently, but if you get out a map and do some research and find out where they are, you'll notice that something amazing has happened, that Luke has given a list of locations covering every point of the compass from Jerusalem. He starts to the northeast in what's now Syria, and then Iraq, and Iran, and Saudi Arabia, and Egypt, and Libya, North Africa, up to Italy, and over to Bosnia, and Romania, and Turkey, all the way around the globe. It's a way of saying, it's, it's a way of Christ giving his apostles and disciples a picture of what he has in mind, that this is where the mission is headed, uh, a multi cultural, multi-ethnic, uh, intergenerational, worldwide Christianity, a, a mission to reach all people and incorporate all tongues and languages. Um, I want us to notice that this is one of the main distinguishing features that distinguishes Christianity from most other religions. Uh, we often say, well, Christianity is unique because it's about having a relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, that's true. And we say Christianity is unique because it's a religion of grace, where you don't work your way up to God. God came to you, and that's, that's also true. But another one of the powerful and unique things about Christianity is that it is attached to no particular culture, that it is designed to invade uh, and not just invade, but actually improve every place where it goes, making every culture more the way it was intended to be, to make Egyptians more Egyptian, and to make people from Libya more Libyan, and to make Japanese and Chinese more the way they were designed to be. If you look at uh, not all religions, but many religions uh, have a great deal of trouble separating themselves from a particular culture or a particular place. I don't want to take unnecessary pot shots at other religions, but I would just want to boast a little bit and point out that you cannot be a Muslim without inhabiting Arabic culture and learning to read the sacred scriptures in Arabic. To be, well, to be Hindu, the very word Hindu comes from the Indus River in India, from which we also get the term India and Indian. In a very real way, to be Hindu is to be Indian. Uh, it is our nature, I think, as human beings to attach our religious belief to our culture, and Christianity defies that association. Uh, and even as 
Western American Christians, it's important for us to remember that Christianity is not a Western or even an American religion, that what Christ has in mind is his international mission with people from all cultures and times and places. Uh, One of my professors in seminary described this moment in Acts as like a space shuttle launch that uh, the disciples get together and pray, waiting for the Holy Spirit, and it's like when they fill up the tank in the shuttle with a thousand tons of liquid hydrogen and oxygen, highly combustible, and the Holy Spirit comes and fills it up with that fuel and sets it off in the moment of Pentecost. And in one moment, T minus zero, all of that liquid hydrogen and oxygen come blasting, released from the pressure they're in, out the bottom and turn into gas and explode in fire in a barely controlled explosion and send the hundred tons of metal and seven astronauts rocketing up into space. And two minutes later, they're moving 14,000 miles an hour, 26 miles in the air and 50 miles downrange that that's, that's what Pentecost is, is like, that Christ has come and ascended and has taken up the reign and, and filled the church with power from the Holy Spirit uh, to, to do his mission. It's the Holy Spirit that does it, and we are along for the ride, being launched into space. Uh, this is uh, the beauty uh, and the majesty of what Christ has in mind uh, for the world, and in a very real sense, the, the whole point of our salvation and the forgiveness of our sins is to participate in this mission. Well, uh, what happens from that moment on in, in church history? How, how have we done? <clears throat> uh, well, you'll notice right there in our passage in verse 6, Uh, Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit and his preparation for the shuttle launch and the mission to the nations yet again. And and the disciples uh, burst in with, uh, hey, uh, is this this when you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Uh, They are expectantly waiting for uh, Jesus to set up his government with them uh, in positions of power and authority, hopefully at his uh, right and left hand. Uh, They have their own agenda for Christ and his mission. And it's easy to look at the, uh, the ne'er-do-well disciples and be frustrated, uh, but I want to ask us today, what sort of agendas do we have for Christ? When we think about our relationship with him, what is it that we expect from him? What is it that we want from him? Uh, what is it that we, what are we here for? And is it because we're excited about the shuttle launch, about the mission that he's on to bring healing and peace and justice uh, and worship of himself to all people? Uh, If we move on a few chapters forward to uh, Acts chapter 8, remember the Great Commission is to go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, given to the apostles, that they're to wait to the Holy Spirit and head out to every place and gossip the gospel to talk about the goodness of Christ. And so eight chapters, where, where are the apostles? They are still in Jerusalem. And so Jesus graciously sent them a persecution. Uh, we read this in Acts 8.1. 
there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and there were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. They, the believers, were scattered all throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And then we read down in verse 4, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And then we begin hearing the story of the places they go. In other words, uh, the Lord loves his people, but he also loves his mission. And uh, he graciously, in a sense, sent them a persecution to help them get out of Jerusalem to partake in the mission and to begin talking about the gospel in all places. And Luke, who is always so careful with his words, says this. If you look back at verse 1, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles, who were actually the ones who Christ personally gave the Great Commission to. They, they still have, have not left. Uh, well, let's, let's go forward a couple more chapters. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can take a look at Acts chapter 11. Beginning in verse 19, we read this. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution... So Luke is continuing this theme we were just talking about. Those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, that's the Greeks, also preaching the Lord Jesus. When the gospel first goes to non-Jews, it is not preached by the disciples. It's not even preached by the Jewish converts. It's preached by men from Cyprus, which is out in the middle of the Mediterranean, and Cyrene, which is in Africa. The the gospel was first preached by Africans to non-Jews. And then one more passage from Acts. If we go forward two more chapters to chapter 13, we hear this about the church in Antioch. This This is the first time the church finally actually organizes a mission and sends out some people without a persecution. We hear in chapter 13, Now there were in the church in Antioch, so not Jerusalem, Prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, that means black, so a black man, Lucius of Cyrene, uh, that's from Libya, so Arabic or African, Menean, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, so he's a Jew, and Saul, a persecutor of the church. So this is our session in Antioch. Uh, We've got a white guy and two Africans and a Jew and a former persecutor of the church. Uh, It is one of the most beautiful and remarkable churches of all time uh, that they had a mixed leadership in this way. And what happens? They were worshiping and the Lord and fasting, and the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, And from there, they sailed to Cyprus. So the beginning of the first Christian mission comes not from the apostles and not from Jerusalem, but in this ragtag church in Antioch comprised of people completely outside of Judaism and a mission completely begun by the Holy Spirit when they send out Saul, the persecutor. Uh, 
And uh, from there, we look forward in church history. uh, And just a a few examples. uh, The gospel did not come to Ethiopia through Christian missions. Actually, there were some Christians who were shipwrecked on the shore of Ethiopia and captured and taken to the Ethiopian court. And uh, the court members were converted. And there's a Christian church, one of the oldest in existence, that survives there today uh, because Christ shipwrecked some Christians off the coast of Ethiopia. Uh, There's a tradition, which I think is probably true, that the gospel came to India through Thomas. And the story goes that Thomas did not go willingly, that uh, Christ actually sent him as a slave uh, to Egypt, where he was um, given a job in the court of an Indian king. And uh, for a long time we thought the story was totally made up, and then recently they found the name of the king Uh, in inscriptions, and the church in India steadfastly believes that this is how the gospel came to them, that Thomas was sent to them uh, as a prisoner. Uh, The gospel came to Scandinavia because the Vikings went to England where there were Benedictine monks and monasteries who loved the gospel but were not concerned to spread it abroad, and so the Vikings burned down their monasteries and killed some of them and captured others and took them back to Scandinavia, resulting in the conversion of the Norwegians and the Swedens. Uh, St. Patrick, who evangelized the Irish Irish from England, was not Irish. He was English, and he got to Ireland because the Irish came and raided England and brought him back to Ireland as a slave. And so over and over again in church history, the mission has gone out, uh, not because we have planned it or taken part in it, um, but because Christ was actually far more concerned than we were about the lost and, uh, and sent people in these ways. Even in Protestantism, uh, the great modern missionary movement did not start until the 1790s when William Carey read the Bible. By the way, he was not a pastor or a church leader of any type. He was just a cobbler, and he read the Bible, and he thought, oh my gosh, we're supposed to be at a mission, and he wrote a book about it, and then he went on a mission and started the modern missionary movement. Uh, but for the first few hundred years of Protestantism, we were... Likewise, not concerned with mission. I say this not because I want us to be guilty, but just to be aware of who we are and that most of us are far more concerned to stay comfortable in our Jerusalem than to be involved in Christ's beautiful mission. But it is so central to the story of the Bible and what Christ is doing, that we really cannot call ourselves fully faithful churches or Christians unless we are participating in this mission in one way or another. We, uh, one of my professors told us this in seminary, that we have no right to insist on going back to our own Jerusalem. Uh, this may be a, a familiar theme to those of you in the military who get pcs a lot. Um, but I want to challenge you to, to begin to pray and ask what God might have for you in missions. There are people in this room who I believe are probably called to the ministry, either as pastors or missionaries. The distinction between them, by the way, I think is silly. It's the, it's the same thing. Um, but even for those of you who are not called to be pastors, we are all called to participate in the mission. Uh, Where might God send you? Uh, Maybe some of you should pray. Some of you who are not from Hawaii should pray about maybe coming back here to commit to this place, 
to see if that maybe is what Christ is calling you to, to move here because of the need for the gospel in this place. Or maybe some other place. Or maybe the home where you've come from. There's nothing wrong. But are you willing to have God move you someplace? Really what I want you to do is not to do something or to feel guilty, but to re-fall in love with Christ's mission to cultivate a passion and a fascination for it, just, just like my son has a passion for what we do, for what Christ is doing in the world. Um, some practical ways to do that. Um, you can read about it. I know many of you love to read our sort of academic types. Uh, this summer, uh, the leaders in the church are going to be reading Heart of Evangelism uh, by one of my professors in seminary. And the first hundred pages is just about the beauty of Christ's mission and how he is doing it, and we are called to take part in it. uh, There's some of these out in the foyer. You're welcome to read them if you like. Uh, Another way to practice cultivating fascination and love for what Christ is doing is uh, if you aren't already supporting or praying for a missionary, uh, I invite you to do it. Do it for yourself, to see what Christ is, is doing through them, to Find a missionary and receive their updates and pray for them and give to them because you will find that when your money is going there, you want to know more what is happening to that money and what is going on that Christ can give you an image of what he's doing in other places. Um, if you don't have such a relationship with a missionary, uh, there's, there's plenty out there to be found. Our church supports a few, uh, and I didn't want to send you away with some resource. Without resources, uh, there's some handouts in the foyer Um, where the worship folders were. And uh, if you're interested, uh, our church supports a church in Tokyo, and that church is in the process of planning a second church. And uh, the man who's planning that church needs support as well and a lot of prayer because Tokyo is a difficult place. Uh, And I'm telling you, if you sign up for his updates and read them and pray for him and that place, uh, it will will change you and your life. Uh, Whatever it is... uh, If I've loaded you up with guilt this morning, I haven't done a good job. What I want you to do is spur you on to load you up with love, fascination for what Christ is doing. Uh, I want to close with the same illustration. You see, when my son loves what we're doing and participates in watering the garden and and making food, uh, you know, he doesn't always do it well. In fact, uh, one time I forgot to turn the hose off and he turned it on, and all the pressure built up in the hose was so much that it blasted the little seedlings right out of the ground. Uh, but, But the point is that that's really the way we are with Christ, that he calls us to be children. Um, we're not the experts in mission. It should be no surprise to us that the church's history and mission is a sad one. Uh, really, the takeaway is how amazing is it that Christ still loves this church the way that he does Uh, just like I love my son and longs for us to love more and more what he does and participate in it. And he will do the work through our feeble hands if we ask him. Uh, Let's pray to him and uh, finish in song this morning. Lord, we do thank you for your work. Help us thank you for your work and love what you are doing. Lord, help us love other cultures and times and places. Help us love non-Christians in the place where we are. Help us have non-Christian friends and love and pray them, pray for them. Help us love you and the things that you love. 
Fill us with life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.